Good morning. It is actually, it's afternoon. It's, I'm going to make this quick because it's lunchtime for me. Um, and uh, it is seriously such an honor to be here. I have admired your church from afar for a couple of years and um, to actually get to like meet some of you and talk to you and get to share the word this morning is truly, really exciting for me. And I think um, I've got a word for us. John 10's exciting. I'm going to share that. Um, but I wanted to start just to make sure we're on the same page, and I'm sure we are, um, but to make sure we agree that uh, last year's Super Bowl was trash. Yeah. It was. It was. I mean, from the refing down to you guys basically played a home game against my Bengals, and here's what really gets me about that game is that morning, it's February, I probably had to wake up and scrape my car of ice and defrost it, and you guys probably went to the beach, because that's what we imagine Californians do every day. And so, again, I'm sure we all agree, trash. Just the fact that you got to play in your home city, and you have the Lakers, and you have Hollywood, we have the Bengals, that's like it. And we have lower property taxes, so Those are, that's the only two things we have on you guys. So anyway, um, go Bengals, who day. And uh, you guys were terrible this year, by the way. You win the Super Bowl, and then you go, like, win five games. So um, I know I'm too new, and it's too early in the morning to call to repentance, but that's what I feel like I'm doing. Um, a little bit more about me, other than being a Bengals fan, is uh, I have a family. I have a picture of my family. This is my wife, Catherine, and in a couple of months, we will have been married 10 years, which is crazy. It's crazy because we look like we're 25. We're not. Uh, and then this is our daughter, Esther. And in a couple weeks, she's going to be 10 months. And uh, Esther is the product of a lot of prayer and a little bit of science and five years of infertility, journeying through that. And uh, we got her about 10 months ago. And I am obsessed with her. We have a blast um, I have a picture of us on Halloween. We dressed up together. <laughs> and we both are loving. Can you zoom in on Esther's face? Yeah. Pray for her. <laughs> Not only is she a pastor's kid, but she's my pastor's kid. And um, anyway, we, are, we, we just feel like we're in a sweet spot right now. We've longed for her and so many answered prayers. Um, and in a couple of years, we feel like we birthed a church and then we birthed a child, and so we're super bored, uh, not a whole lot going on. Um, but I wanted, uh, yeah, as we jump in this morning, I wanted to give you a little bit of an image about who um, we are, and maybe a little bit more about me, um, and we'll get to John 10 in a second, but I, I went to Indiana University, so go Hoosiers. I, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> I didn't, I expected zero, so <laughs> one's better than zero. And, uh, and studied finance there. That's what um, I thought I wanted to do and, and actually what I did do for a little bit. And in college, and I grew up in the church, and I was sort of passively in and out of um, following Jesus, not really following Jesus, believing in him. Uh, it's been a grace uh, that I've always believed that uh, he was who he said he was and that he rose from the dead. But there was a part of him that I had a, tr uh, a little bit of trouble with, and especially in high school and college, it just didn't seem like following Jesus was fun. And, um, and I'm a little bit of like a thrill seeker, like want new experiences, meet new people. And so in college, I was like, man, I, I will follow Jesus, mostly because I don't want to go to hell. That's, that was my thought process as a child. And, uh, but I don't know if I want to follow him now because he's not a whole lot of fun. 
At least that was my perception. And everything changed for me one day in the junior year of my uh, schooling there where um, I lived with three other guys. One of them was dating a girl named Alexa, and we loved Alexa. She would come over all the time. And uh, then first semester junior year, uh, Alexa was acting super weird. And uh, like we'd text her and say, hey, you should come over. And then she'd text back like two weeks later, or she would come over at a random time. And then her hair was like a different color or her hair was a different length. I mean, we didn't know what was going on until one day, I think it was at the end of October, that she sat all of us down, her boyfriend, my roommate, and the rest of us, and she said, um, hey, you know, I've been really weird lately. Um, it's because I've been diagnosed with leukemia, 19 years old. And she said, uh, you know, they've given me uh, a couple months to live. She said, I'm, I'm, I'm seven out of eight rounds into chemo. It's not working. And, um, and again, I'm passively following Jesus at this point. But I knew enough, and I'd read, you know, some of the book to say, like, I don't know if he still does stuff now, but um, he did stuff in the book, so we should, we should pray. And so I got friends together. Again, I'm not even all in on this thing, but I get friends together to start praying, and we fast all day, and because we figured that's what you should do. And so we prayed for her, and, and you know, you don't, you, we prayed for healing. You can't tell if someone gets healed of leukemia. And, uh, and I remember that night, we uh, left the prayer thing, and we all went to Qdoba and broke our fast with a burrito, which is the most spiritual thing that you can do. And I was talking to Rob. Rob and I kind of co-led this prayer meeting, and he's like, hey, I, I don't know if she got healed, but, like, she feels ready for death. Um, and he was right. That wasn't, like, a morbid thing. She had been released of so much bitterness towards God, you know, 19, getting leukemia, and, uh, and I was like, you know what? I think that's true. She is. And um, it was like a week later. It was Thanksgiving break. And so I went home to my parents' house. And Alexa called me. And so I remember I left the family room. I went to my childhood bedroom. And I took the call. And she told me this story. She said, I'm at a new doctor. I'm in Seattle. So she normally didn't go there. She was in Seattle. And they were giving her her eighth chemo treatment. And she said, the doctor came in and said, okay, hey, Alexa, my name's so-and-so. Um, how long have you been in remission? And Alexa said, I'm, I'm not in remission. I'm, I'm here for my eighth treatment. And he said, no, not, no, you're in remission. How, like, how long has that been? And Alexa's telling me the story, and she said, doctor, I'm not in remission. I'm here to get my eighth treatment, and the first seven haven't worked, so I just need you to give me that. And the doctor pulled out the papers and said, no, we just ran all the tests. There's zero cancer in your body, and uh, I've told this story before, and every time, and I remember being on the phone with Alexa, and I remember thinking, this is the most fun I've ever had, <laughs> I, and it was just a phone call, but I remember thinking, this is more fun than any party, any relationship, any drink, any, anything I've, this is the, literally, this phone, I mean, I can see my childhood bedroom, I'm standing on the left side of my bed, and I remember thinking, this is the most fun I've ever had. And, and it was that moment that I decided, okay, if that's what he does, then I'm all in. I'm all in for anybody that can do that. And, uh, and not perfectly, but since that moment, everything shifted in my life where I went from casually following this guy to being absolutely all in for the guy that can do that to my friend. And it's been really, really fun. It's the most fun I've ever had. 
And, uh, and it led me, you know, I graduated college, and there was a dream with some college friends of, hey, what if someday, possibly, maybe, potentially, we start a church? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. I'm majoring in finance. I'm going to fund the thing. I'm going to be an elder. <clears throat> I'm a pastor now, so that's hilarious. And, uh, and so I got my degree in finance, got, went into corporate finance, and did that thing. And, and for the record, we need our best people in the marketplace, that's where we need. We don't, the goal is not to work for a church, but there was something in my spirit as I sat in that cubicle and I listened to like five or six sermons a day and I was like, ah, this isn't it for me. And so um, I'd been married for a year at that point and Catherine and I on our one year anniversary of our wedding, we did what any newly married couple should do. We moved to Las Vegas <laughs> and, uh, and we took a gamble. We would get out there and the goal was that I would work for a church um, before we start one. And that, for we spent four years there. I got to help lead a church there, and it was amazing. And, um, and after that, uh, we really felt like the Lord said, you're starting a church near your people, um, which we knew was the Midwest. And that's what moved us about four and a half years ago to Cincinnati. And, and anytime I'm with coastal people, I feel the need to explain. Like, Cincinnati is a part of a state. <laughs> There's more than one. I don't know if you knew that, California. There's, it's called Ohio, and it's in the middle. Of, it's somewhere between here and New York, and um, actually really exciting. We just got our first stoplight in Cincinnati. So, <laughs> This is all the images I think that you guys have of us. Like, we just got done farming, and spring harvest is here, and daylight savings time is for us. And actually, none of that's true. We live in a city, and we started this church in the middle of downtown Cincinnati in uh, September of 2020 which is a terrible time to start a church. <laughs> it's hard to start a church. You should ask Lorenzo. It's hard any time. September of 2020 was such an interesting time to start a church, but we did. And about nine months into that church, I thought the hardest thing was going to be planting in the middle of a pandemic, and that turned out to not be true. Uh, nine months later, uh, we got a call saying, you know, we had to get out of our venue. And when you're a nine-month-old church, just so you know, you're on the verge of life and death like every week. And, um, but then we get a call getting kicked out of our venue, and then something else happens. We have a pretty significant staff change. Um, another pastor on our staff got let go in like a, a pretty difficult way. And, and no one told me to say this, but I want you to know that your pastor was on the phone with me at least every week. He was, on, he was calling me. He was texting me all of the time. Lorenzo, I mean, Lorenzo in so many ways pastored me uh, as I was pastoring this new little church through one of the more, I hope the most traumatic thing our church ever has to go through. And, and I know you guys know this, um, but you have such an incredible pastor. You do. And, and the way that he helped me lead our church with conviction and kindness is very, very unique. And I know he leads you the same way. You don't see that tension um, in a whole lot of people where there's such a conviction to what is right and there's a kindness in how he does it. And so um, I, I think you know this, but I'll remind you from 2,000 miles away, you have a, a fantastic pastor. And we could, yeah. <clears throat> so Lorenzo, thank you for being such a friend. He, in a lot of ways, our church is thriving and we're stable-ish now and um, and a lot of that is because we made it through a really difficult time where he was with us. So um, anyway, that's all the time I have this morning. <laughs>
All right, let's get to the Bible. How about that? Um, we're going to go to um, John 10, and you guys have been doing a journey through John on seven very clear, pretty concise, I mean, there are not a whole lot of words, statements that Jesus made about himself. And yet, when you dig into the context of each one of these statements, there is something so incredibly profound about what he is saying. And so we're going to um, read through this, and I know you've already talked about a couple of these big ones, like, uh, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. Next week, you're going to talk about how he is the good shepherd. All of these cool images, like the vine or the resurrection or the way, the truth, and the life. But let's be honest, the one you've been waiting for is I am the gate. <laughs> I chose this date, and here I am talking about a gate when I could be talking about resurrection or bread. Um, so anyway, but John 10 is actually super profound. So we're going to stay and we're going to read it together. John 10, verses 1 through 10. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all of his own outside, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was saying. Jesus said again, truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. You can have a seat. And, um, and I know every week, um, you guys are here every week, first of all, and you listen intently to what Lorenzo or what Ryan says, but just in case you missed last week, this is actually just a spillover conversation from what you talked about in John 9. Jesus uh, had healed a blind man on the Sabbath, made some people upset, and then he starts interacting with the blind man, and then the Pharisees come in, the religious leaders, and they get upset, and Jesus is now addressing them. So he's not addressing, and this is a common American mistake, he's not addressing you. The Bible's not written to you. It's written for us, but it's not written to you. He's not even addressing his disciples. He's not addressing the crowds. He's addressing the Pharisees when he gives this little monologue in John 10, and he's saying, this is for you. Um, now, there is, there's a phrase in my church that as soon as I say it, people know what kind of Sunday it's going to be. I'm going to say it here. I'll teach it to you. It's a phrase, uh, relevance is coming. Okay, so say it with me. Relevance is coming. Relevance is coming. And it sounds cute and it's funny, but there's going to be a moment in about 12 minutes when you're like, can we get to the point? And we're going to be wading through the context, going verse by verse of what he's saying. And I promise, John 10, 9 is coming. We will get to relevance, but we've got to wade through some context because if we're looking at this with American eyes, we're going to miss some of it, but we've got to get into the Jewish mindset of the first century. So relevance is coming, I promise. Set your clock, 15 minutes. Here we go. Jesus um, is giving a, an image right here, right, of course, of shepherding. And, um, and if you are an American, this sounds a little foreign to you, but if you are a first century Jew, you're immediately getting pictures in your mind. And actually, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, which would have had um, potentially 
most of the Old Testament or their Bible memorized. Certainly, a lot of chapters of the Bible would have been memorized uh, by heart for the Pharisees. And when Jesus starts talking about shepherding, again, that's foreign to us. It was not foreign to them. And as soon as he's giving images of shepherds, the Pharisees and other people around them would have likely gone to a few other passages in their scriptures. Maybe they would have gone to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Maybe they would have talked about Jeremiah 3 and how God promised a new shepherd. But I'm guessing if he's speaking to the Pharisees, the, the big chapter or the big chunk of scripture that was about shepherds, and, and you know this, you probably read it this week, is Ezekiel 34, Right? We've all read Ezekiel, I'm sure, recently. And so, and to us, this sounds foreign or it's tucked deep in the Old Testament. But to the, to the Pharisees, as soon as he starts talking about shepherding, they would have thought, man, this is a reference back to Ezekiel 34. And I'm going to read a little bit of that because this is the image that they would have gotten. And Ezekiel, the whole chapter, if you read it, it's about how God was upset with the previous shepherds or the priests and how they were leading his people. But then he makes a promise, and he says, one day I'm going to send a new shepherd. I'm going to send someone else ahead, and he's going to bring new things. Verse 25 says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate dangerous animals in the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. I will make them in the area around my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in their season, showers of blessing. And again, this whole chapter is this beautiful shepherding imagery of God saying that there is coming one who's going to be a shepherd of my people. And he's going to bring a new covenant. And he's going to bring blessings on my hill. And the people in that moment, again, if you read through the whole rest of the scriptures, the people are getting glimpses of this. Like, is it David? No, David says it's not him. Or is it Moses? It wasn't Moses. It was a promise to Abraham. And if you read through the whole Old Testament, you feel, you can almost palpably feel the anticipation and the expectation of where is this shepherd. But what they're really looking for is they're trying to answer the question in Ezekiel 34, which are this, when is this covenant? Where are these blessings? This was promised to us. We're waiting for them, and yet we don't see them. And so throughout all of John 10, the people would have likely been wondering, where is, if you're talking about where is the covenant? You get images back to Ezekiel 34. So verse 1, all of this is to lead to verse 1 where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. And in reading a bunch of commentaries about this passage, um, they felt the need to explain what Near Eastern um, shepherding tactics would have been, which is ridiculous because we're all super familiar with that. And, um, and just to clarify, I'm not. I know. Ohio, we're not shepherd. Like, that's, that's not, this, had, this was new to me. And so I looked it up, and, and here I have a picture of what likely a sheep pen would have looked like. Um, big, made of stone, much bigger and actually much taller than I would have anticipated. And on the top, they would have put thorns or sharp pieces of rock because they didn't want anybody, not just wolves, but they didn't want people to climb over it. And what's interesting about a sheep pen is they would have only used this at night. A sheep pen was not used all of the time. This was just where the shepherd would bring in their sheep at night. And Jesus says, look, if anybody's climbing in the wrong way, that matters. And this doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but um, 21st century image, and again, I just became a dad of a little girl, so dads, you might get this, but um, there's coming a day, and I have a picture, another picture of my daughter, and... <clears throat> 
At this point, I'm just showing you to manip- manipulate how you feel. Like, oh man, I, I don't know what he said, but he has a cute daughter. And in about 30 or so years, she'll be allow- allowed to date. Um, and you better believe when that guy wants to come and take her out, he's going to come to the front door. And what do you think my response is going to be if he tries to come over the fence or climb up the wind? I mean, that's, that's not going to be, it's the reason I do CrossFit, right? <laughs> I'm glad I got that in. If you do CrossFit, you have to talk about it like every 30 minutes, and I, I was starting to shake. And uh, so in about 30, 30 years, when this event happens, I'm going to not just care who the man is, I'm going to care how he gets to her. And Jesus is saying, actually, how you get here matters. You can't climb over the wall. And this is a very specific jab at the religious leaders. And he goes on. And again, all the people are wondering, okay, if that's true, if that's what's happening, where's the blessing, when's the covenant? They keep asking this question. He says, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now, what's interesting about a sheep pen is it was big enough that it could hold multiple flocks. And so shepherds would often share a sheep pen, and then they would also kind of go in together, and they would hire a gatekeeper talks about the gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper, he was just there at night. Or I'm sorry, he was just there during the day. And the gatekeeper would monitor what shepherd was allowed in because he knew, okay, you're a part of this, but you're not. And he, it was his job to monitor the flow of when the animals or when the shepherds could come in and out. And again, not a real dangerous job. The real danger was at night, but there was someone that was there monitoring. And not only were there multiple shepherds there, but the way that the shepherds would lead the sheep Um, was very specific. In the West, so America, Australia, shepherds drive their sheep from behind. They use dogs, and they're usually using their staff, and they're driving the sheep from behind. But Jesus, an Eastern man, would have had more of the Eastern view of shepherding in his mind. And the way an Eastern shepherd would lead sheep is actually out front with his voice. Because sheep couldn't see well, they can't see well, but they can hear well. And so the shepherd's out front, and he's constantly speaking because the sheep would know his voice. Now, this is an obvious question, but which one of those, if you're a sheep, sounds more appealing to you? And this is the imagery that Jesus gives us. See, religion is that Western model of shepherding. Religion drives us to a response from behind. But Jesus says, no, no, that's not not what I do. I use my voice. I'm out ahead of you. And Jesus also leads us to a response, but he leads us from ahead. Religion drives from behind. Jesus leads us from ahead. And I love, um, and I was listening to the past couple messages, I love the way Ryan kicked off this series. And he, it was right after the Super Bowl, ironically, which also was trash. We should have been there too. Um, But he said, you know, there was those commercials uh, about Jesus that said he gets us. And Ryan asked this question, and I think it's what you're answering in a lot of ways over the next few weeks. Who is the he that he gets us is from? And each one of these statements that Jesus makes about himself gives us another aspect or descriptor of him. And I'll say this in reading the first part of John 10. He, Jesus, he is the kind of man or he is the kind of God that knows your name. Now, that's super cliche, Christian talk. But I want you to stop, and I want you to actually think about that. What does it mean that Jesus actually knows your name? What does it communicate when someone that doesn't have to know your name 
learns your name. Imagine uh, after service today, is af- as you're leaving and you walk by me, I called each one of you by name. What would that communicate to you? I didn't, FYI, so don't expect that. Um, but what, what would it have done? And, you know, and, and I would have asked Lorenzo, like, hey, send me all the boomers' Facebooks and the millennials' Instagrams and whatever Gen Z's doing, TikTok. And I just have flashcards on the flight here, and I remember, that would communicate something to you because I don't have to learn your name. What if I would have? How much more that the God of the universe actually knows your name? Guys, that's crazy. And often we're told how much Jesus loves us, and that's true, but Jesus also likes you. You ever thought about that? Jesus doesn't just love you, but he likes you. He wants to know your name. So part of the he that he gets us, according to John 10, is he's the kind of God that knows your name, because when someone knows your name, it communicates two things. It communicates there's a proximity and there's an intimacy that you have with that person. Jesus calls you by name. Verse four, it says, when he has brought all his own outside, he goes out ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Again, they're wondering, where's the blessing? When's the covenant? You're wondering, when's the relevance? They're wondering this as he's getting through this shepherding imagery, thinking back to Ezekiel. Jesus goes on and he said that he gave them this figure of speech, verse six, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus said again, truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. And one of my favorite parts of what I get to do, one of my favorite parts of my job, is when I I get to watch, and I'm privy to way more stories than the average person, of when someone starts to hear the voice of God. And it's often not audible, but you know when, whether you're a believer or you're not, you are called into faith, or if you're a believer and Jesus speaks so lovingly but convicting you of something. I get so many stories like this, and, um, and I got permission. I want to share, this is not her real name, but a girl that goes to my church. We're going to call her Kayla. And Kayla has been coming to my church for about a year and a half. I have a picture of us. And uh, Kayla has been coming for a while. And uh, there's a few months in that, um, and Kayla came in, she believed in Jesus, she followed Jesus, she found a church, she sought us out on her own. And, and I'd been hearing, the more I got to know her, um, she'd come over, she was a part of the house group that my wife and I are in, we'd, we'd hear about this unhealthy relationship that she had in her past, um, which when you're a pastor and you hear some things in someone's past, it could be like five minutes ago, and so I'm hearing about this, and she's sharing about how that's in the past, and there was a Sunday, like four or five months into her being at our church, that I preached um, on repentance, and, and I know you guys have some of these Sundays here, where you leave and you're like, ugh, he was there. No, not ugh in a bad way, ugh in a good way. Like, it was such a sweet Sunday. <laughs> you don't have any of those here. We do. Um, but it was a Sunday where I preached on repentance and the Spirit of God just fell. And people are weeping and crying and repenting. And, and on her way out, Kayla pulls me aside. And she says, look, I, you know, and I'd heard pieces of this. And I knew that there was this married couple, this older couple that had really supported her and helped her move here. She lived in, uh, they moved her to Cincinnati because that's where they lived. And they paid her first couple months rent when she needed it. And she said, look, I know I've told you about them. They've been really kind to me. She said, but for the last couple of years, both when I was uh, in my other city and here, she said, I, 
have been having an affair with the man in that marriage. So it was like two, two or three years ongoing. And um, in the spirit of, I mean, that morning, she said, I'm done. She said, I'm, I'm done with that. I can't do that anymore. And again, you know, you hear some of these things sometimes, but if it's a habit or if it's an addiction, you take it with a grain of salt. But guys, Kayla was done. She went home that day. She texted him and said, I, I can't ever see you again. And then she felt like the Lord said, I want you to go talk to the wife. And, and I don't know them. They don't go to our church. I don't understand how this part of the story works. But she drove up to the Cincinnati suburbs and talked to the wife. And the wife forgave her. And the freedom that Kayla felt. And that, I mean, she called me, just burst into tears. And that was almost a year, eight or nine months ago. And it's been done. And Kayla, and I could, tell, I could spend the rest of my time today talking about what God is doing in Kayla's life. And I don't know the, the married couple. They obviously had some issues, and now they're out on the table. They can actually start to heal their marriage because everything's out on the table. And Kayla is encountering the presence of God almost every Sunday. There's something new that God's asking her to do, and she is loving life. And, um, and I don't, I don't want to speak negatively of your church at all, but let's just be honest Collective church would have never impacted Kayla's life. And this married couple, I don't know their names. I doubt that they would have ever logged on randomly and listened to your podcast. But because you guys helped plant a new church in Cincinnati, you now have a part of Kayla's story. And I don't say that flippantly because you need to know, because you go to this church, because you've decided to go to a church that cares more about the kingdom than your kingdom, that cares more about the church than this church, you have a part in Kayla's story. And let's be honest, we're never, a city church is never going to pay you back financially or relationally some of the things that you've invested in us. Sorry. <laughs> Kayla doesn't even know your name. This married couple doesn't even know our name, much less do they have anything to say to you guys. But on behalf of them, on behalf of Kayla, on behalf of me, on behalf of Ben and Ben and Sheridan and Rachel, John, Catherine, um, thank you. Seriously, thank you for investing in a new church. I could spend so much time just telling you stories of life change that has happened that you would have never gotten to be a part of if you had just cared about your own kingdom. But you go to a church that doesn't, <clears throat> and on behalf of them, um, I need to tell you thank you because there is a real life change happening in downtown Cincinnati because you guys were generous enough to invest in new churches. So thanks for being a church that plants churches. I know Lorenzo sort of said it flippantly. You need to know how big of a deal it is that you invest in other churches. So on behalf of City Church, thank you. Verse 9, uh, Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will come in he will go out and he will find pastor. Three things that Jesus says you will get when you come into relationship with him. Number one, he says you will be saved. Now, saved is a little misleading there in the English. In the Greek, it's a word called uh, named sozo, S-O-Z-O. And it means so much more than saved as we talk about saved. Uh, sozo means to deliver, to protect, to heal. The, the full definition is to be made whole. So when Jesus says you'll be saved, he's talking way more then you'll just get into heaven later. He's saying, no, 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 I'm going I'm to make you whole now. 
And what Jesus is saying is, whatever you need, I am. Whatever you need, whatever you need. Do you need healing? I am. You need restoration? I am. You need protection or peace? I am. You need love? You need miracle? You need, a mercy, you need mercy in your life? Jesus is saying, I am. Jesus came, number one, to save you. But really, what he's saying there is he came to make you whole. It's not just about later, but it's about now. He came to make you whole. Number two, it says that you'll come in and go out. There is a freedom that comes when you start to follow Jesus. There's a freedom there. Galatians 5, 1 is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And oftentimes, and I don't know if you feel this as a follower of Jesus, but I feel this where people say there's this stigma about my life that I'm just following this outdated rule book. Like actually my life is quite constricted because of the man that I follow. And that's not how I read it. That is not the book that I'm reading. There is freedom in following this man. And oftentimes we can paint Jesus as some like divine downer when actually freedom is what he came to do. Jesus, he came and he painted a preferred vision for my life. He painted a preferred vision for your life in the future and now. And it's in light of that vision. We don't have to give stuff up. We get to. It is freedom that we've been set in. And we get to give things up. And so for that reason... I don't really miss Sunday brunch. I'd rather be here. I don't really miss the, you know, the, the drinking or the drugs or the, anything that was a part of your life. You shouldn't miss that. The Holy Spirit's so much better. I don't, be, I don't feel restrained by monogamy. That doesn't feel like a rule that I'm kind of underneath. It's like, no, this is a joy. This is the best way that I can live my life. And in so many ways, sometimes people paint this as some restrictive thing when actually Jesus just says, no, no, you get to follow me. And so he says that you can come in and go out because you've been set free. And number three, he says that you'll find pasture. You will be provided for. Matthew 6, 26, when Jesus says that he feeds the birds of the air. And we're worth so much more than them. He's going to provide for us. What's interesting, and if you remember this from the picture earlier, what's interesting about a sheep pen, and this is what made the, the, the conversation that Jesus had a little bit confusing, is there actually is no gate. Jesus is not personifying some object. There is no object. There is just an opening in the sheep pen. Now, during the day, there's a gatekeeper, but that's not really when a lot of the danger is. That's more at night. So at night, there's really just this opening. And at night, while everyone's sleeping, there's this opening. But do you know what the gate is? At night, when the wolves are out, and maybe when the robbers are at the height, the gate is not some object that's built. It's not some piece of wood that's laid across. The, the gate every night is the shepherd. The shepherd will literally lay his body down in the opening. While the sheep are on the inside, the shepherd lays him, his body down, and he himself becomes the gate. Relevance. The shepherd lays down his life so that the sheep inside of the pen can have safety, provision, and the abundance of life. So when Jesus says he is the gate, we get a little confused because we picture maybe a piece of wood that opens and closes. That's not at all what they would have seen. They would have known exactly what he meant. Oh, you're, you're going to become that? You're going to lay your life down for, for those? You're going to lay down so that they can have the abundance of life there. See, the gate, um, and this is what is throwing us off, the gate is not an object. 
The gate is a man. And the gate lays himself down so that the sheep could have the abundance of life. And so these people, they're waiting on a blessing. They're waiting on a covenant. They're looking for it everywhere. And the problem is they were looking for a thing when Jesus said, actually, that thing is a man. That thing is me. That thing doesn't exist in any other thing, but that thing, the covenant, the blessing that you've been looking for since Ezekiel 34, and really since Genesis 12, is me. Um, I, and this feels like a safe place, um, I have an addiction. And yeah, here we go. Um, I am addicted to budget airlines. And, and it, it, is, it is a problem. Um, and I have been for years now. I, I'm actually living into my addiction tomorrow. And, um, and my dad hates this. I mean, he, he's like, man, if you ever need to get somewhere, why do you keep booking those airlines? And, and every time I'm like, no, this time I'm flying Delta. I'm going to do it. And then it's like 300 versus $130. And I'm like, ah, maybe not. And, uh, and so like 10 years ago, when, when Catherine and I first moved to Las Vegas, we moved in the summer, but we were coming home for Christmas. Catherine actually got to come home like a week earlier than I did. I stayed in Vegas. And again, my dad, uh, before I moved, he said, hey, when you come home, like we want to see you, just get a real airline. And, uh, and he said, stop, like, stop flying those other ones. Um, he said, if you ever need to get somewhere, make sure you don't fly them. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll pray about it. I work for a church. I'll pray. But also, I worked for a church. I was raising my own support at that point. I went from a finance job to very little. And so Christmas time comes, and I couldn't do it. I booked an airline, and it's not, it's not important which one. You don't need to know. <laughs> but we're going to call them Luntier. And uh, so I fly Luntier. <laughs> And, and I get to the airport, and you know, if you've ever flown one of these, there's like a 50 to like 95% chance that you're going to be delayed, and you just roll with it. And again, I live in Vegas. I'm willing to gamble, so I'm going to gamble, and I show up to the airport, and uh, it's delayed an hour, which is fine. Family Christmas is tomorrow. It's not today. I'll just have a little bit less sleep. And then I sit there, and it's delayed another hour, and, and the picture I always get of budget airlines is it's like... One guy sitting in a room trying to figure out how to get that pilot into that flight. Like, there's no processes, I'm pretty sure. And, um, and then it's delayed a third hour. And every now and then, I, this is, again, the image I get. Hopefully no one works for one of these. Of just the guy gives up, and he's like, whatever. Canceled. <laughs> and, um, and that's what happened. Delayed three hours, and then they just canceled. And nobody knows why, because the one man in the room just made the decision on his own. He didn't tell anybody. I just feel like, yeah, we couldn't get enough peanuts in the flight, and it's just easier to get rid of it. And so they cancel my flight, but nobody cares about my Christmas. And, I mean, Delta barely cares, but they care more than Luntier does. And, uh, and they don't know why. They, and they, they rebook me, but you know how budget airlines are. They fly like every three days. And so at this point, they booked me three days from now during my five-day stint home to be home with my family. And again, I'm 24 years old. I'm like a man, and I'm married, and I'm like, I really just want to see my mom. And, uh, and I don't know why, but I called my dad, um, probably because I knew he would help. And I called my dad, and I'm like almost in tears at the, canceled my flight. And he's like, what, what airline is it? Blood tear. <laughs> And he's like, okay, well, maybe they're going to read, but in three days they're going to. And he's like, okay. And he doesn't say anything about that. He's like, it's Christopher, which is my name to my family. 
He says, Christopher, um, it's going to be okay. He said, I'm getting on the internet now. And he said, okay. Okay, there's, I see a flight that leaves Vegas in an hour. Uh, it's a direct flight. It's on Delta. And just get on that. And it was like he read my mind because I immediately go to like, this is probably like $600. Like this is exactly what I was avoiding. It's the day of, it's the hour of. And he said, Christopher, just get on that flight. And then he paused and he said, don't worry about the cost. I'm going to pay it. Just come home. And that was the most, one of the most loving conversations I've ever had with my dad. And I don't know if he ended the conversation with I love you. He didn't need to because in that moment, what love needed to communicate to me is to just come home. What love needed, what love didn't need to communicate to me was um, I told you so. Love didn't say I told you so at one point there. Love didn't say, okay, we're going to split the cost on this one. Love didn't say, well, maybe you should you know, sleep in the airport and this is your punishment, but we'll get you home tomorrow. Love didn't say any of those things. Love in that moment just said, come home. Doesn't matter the cost. I'm going to pay it. Just come home. Love opens the gate. Love actually is the gate. Love says our name, Christopher. Just come home because love is not an object What we read in John 10 is love is a man. And he says this to each and every one of us. And whatever situation we're in, he says, just come home. Or to a lot of us that have been following Jesus for a while, maybe he's saying, just come back home. Just come back home. There's safety here. There's provision here. There's wholeness found in this place. And um, if you've never committed your life to following Jesus, um, this is a great day to do that. And I've got to tell you, and I I know your pastors would agree, um, this is not just a a raise your hand kind of thing. It's, It's a bit more costly than that. Following Jesus is completely free, yet he will expect everything of you. Following Jesus means you surrender full control. And, and years ago, and in, in maybe the era of church that you grew up in, I know in the era of church that I grew up in, belief was expected. Everybody went to church in the Midwest. Doubt was totally squashed. Doubt was almost, um, uh, it, it was shoved to the side. And the most courageous thing you could do, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, is just ask a question. And in a lot of ways, we've gone to the other direction right now, where doubt and skepticism are in some ways celebrated. They're very common. And I wonder if that's you today. I wonder if the most courageous, rebellious thing you could do is just believe. Is just put your, and not that your doubt has to go away, but I wonder if if the most courageous the most rebellious thing you could do is actually say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to silence the skeptic that makes me stand on the outside while these people are reading an old book or raising their hands during a song. I wonder if the most courageous thing that you could do is say, okay, I'm going to believe. I'm going to just come home. And for most of us, we've been in this church thing for a while, but maybe Jesus is saying, just come back home. Just come into the pen. Just come back into where I am. And maybe what's keeping us out here is that we know if we walk through that gate, the gate is going to require something of us. If we walk back through that pen, the gate might say, 
hey, I'm, I'm going to need that. Or, hey, you're, you're not going to actually need in there. There's something about the gate that is beautiful and loving, but also the gate does require something of us. I believe Jesus is saying to us this morning, just come home. Just come back home. Don't worry about the cost. I'm going to pay it. Just come back home. There's protection inside the gate. There's provision inside the gate. And there is wholeness inside the gate. So this morning, as we've revealed, Jesus is the gate himself. For some of us, we might just need to make that courageous decision to say, okay, and I'm going to walk through him. It's not through it. It's not through religion, but it's through Jesus himself. He is the only way inside of the sheep pen where you get the fullness of life now. So we're going to pray. We're going to respond in worship. But I want us to think, Lord, what are you asking me to come back home for? Let's pray.